again, everyone. Well, welcome to episode four. Yay! No more lists. Well, at least not long lists like last week. I'll be honest, there may be a little bit of a list. But this episode is the beginning of the end for the primordials, the succession myth. Well, only part one, as you can see. But anyways, this is like the main part of Theogeny, and it's set up kind of similar to the way the episodes have been. So the first half was just listing off a bunch of gods and spirits being born, and now that they're alive, it's time to get them into some real trouble. So this myth obviously wasn't only told by Hesiod, but he was the only one who wrote like a whole long series of poems specifically about this story. So he is kind of like the standard source for this kind of stuff. So the place we left off last week was Gaia had a bunch of kids with two of her fatherless sons. Well, the other fatherless children she had were mountains. So uh, wait, but actually the sons that she did have kids with were the personification of the sky and the sea. And she's also the earth. So I guess it really doesn't matter that the other kids were mountains. But anyways, so she had a bunch of kids with her own kids. Odd choice, I know. But I guess you get tired of reproducing without a mate. And the kids that she had with her son, the sea, were just kind of sea deities. Like they had jobs and kids of their own. But in the stream of this story, they don't really do too much. But the other children she had with her son Uranus, they definitely have a lot more footing in mythology. So just for a quick refresher, Gaia and Uranus's union created the 12 titans, six sons and six daughters, the three cyclops and the three hecatonchires. But Uranus was not too thrilled with all of the kids. He was like kind of cool with the titans, I guess. But the Cyclopses and the Hecatonchires he hated because they were a little bit scarier than the rest. And he was super afraid that he was going to be overthrown by them. And that's like the worst thing that could happen. And something that still happens to this day, but typically dads don't really do this. Well, at least not that often. But like any other bad dad, he took these less than desirable children and imprisoned them somewhere hidden away. Like as soon as they were born immediately after. So they were hidden in secret, but it, also it was somewhere in the earth. So in Gaia, and it's sometimes referred to as her womb, but anyways. So Gaia was not cool with her kids being locked away. So instead of trying to continue to talk out the situation and reach a rash agreement on the matter, she turned to her other children, the Titans, to help free their monstrous siblings. Distressed and angry, she asked her children to murder their father and get revenge on him for stealing and hiding their siblings. But apparently, a majority of the family wasn't too keen on helping mommy punish daddy. But there was one mama's boy, the youngest of the Titans, who was 100% ready to do whatever was needed. Cronus apparently hated his father because of his sex drive, and I guess if you had 17 siblings, you might be a little upset with your parents too. But Hesiod makes sure to say that Cronus hated his lusty sire, which is like a really dirty way to say that. But I mean, you don't have 18 kids and not have a libido problem. And Cronus was also the worst of their children. Terrible, actually, as he's often described. She then fashions him a jagged or serrated sickle, the one he is often seen with out of adamant. 
which in ancient Greek translates out to mean unconquerable or untamable. But what it's actually probably referring to is potentially diamonds or just a really hard And this is kind of funny. So it kind of sounds like adamantanium, like the metal that Wolverine's claws are coated in. And obviously this is not a coincidence. It was done on purpose. And it's actually used in a lot of classic stories like Gulliver's Travel, Lord of the Rings, and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. I think it's just a cute reference back to mythology for me. So she gives him the diamond slash hard metal sickle and Cronus then waits for his father and his overactive libido to try and approach Gaia and spread himself all over her. Ensuring everything goes off without a hitch, Gaia hid Cronus in the perfect spot to ambush his cruel father when the moment was right. And eventually that moment did come. So you remember last week how we were talking about all those titans that represented like the pillars of heaven that held apart the earth and the sky? So this is where they really come into action. So as their uh, exposed father approaches their mother who is lying in wait, the four titan brothers that are their personification of the pillars or poles, north, south, east, west, or Kaios, Cryos, Hyperion, and Iapetus, grab their father and hold him down as their younger brother approaches with the sickle. And then he does it, castrates his own dad. But keep in mind, it's never really made clear what actually happens to the god of the sky following this pretty traumatic event. Like, well, first off, yes, he is an immortal god. Okay, so death, in the way that we understand it for like a man, is kind of pretty much off the table. But I mean, a castration with a jagged sickle, that's something that definitely does some irreversible damage, right? Like it would be hard to not bleed out and die. But again, he is an immortal. That doesn't happen. So the act of castrating him versus trying to kill him is more of a very on-the-nose symbolic gesture. If you don't like your kids, you should stop making them. And it's also like super embarrassing. So I guess it's more of like a burn that went too far. I guess it's kind of like what happened to Caesar, but also actually now it's, I guess it's really not because only like five of his kids helped do it. And the one of them that was supposed to kill him didn't even do that. So never mind, scratch that, cross that out. After the disgrace he endured on earth, he then returned to the heavens and never really came back down except to get his son back later on, but he did apparently lose all of his powers, and he just kind of hangs out up there, not up to much. But anyways, so he castrates his dad, and then he immediately tosses the severed member into the sea. I wouldn't want to hold on to that for long either. So, from the castration itself, there's actually two things that fall from the sky and land on the earth and in the ocean which is yucky because that's his brother, right? But anyways, so one is obviously the genitalia itself and the other is the drops of blood from the cut. So the genitalia lands in the ocean and gets swept away by the waves and the immortal flesh mixing with the seawater produced a bunch of foam, sea foam. So much so that a lady 
actually came out of it. And that lady was, of course, the most beloved goddesses of all, Aphrodite. She is the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. And this makes sense knowing her birth story, but she's also widely worshipped as a goddess of the sea, which also makes sense. And yes, she is an Olympian. So kind of like the first one, I guess, because the rest aren't born yet. But the Olympians also don't form until after this massive war that's coming up. So in that sense, they all became Olympians kind of at the same time. But she's still the oldest. But after she emerged from the seawater, Eros and Himeros picked her up from the earth and brought her up to heaven to hang out with the rest of the gods. And apparently everyone was smitten over her like as soon as she showed up. So that kind of tells you pretty much everything you need to know about the way that the other gods slash men perceive her. Okay, and so like I have mentioned this before, but because there was no real written authority over these myths for so many years, there are different versions of the same story. So just details that are different enough that it kind of changes a lot of things along the way. A butterfly effect on the Olympic family tree. So lots of kinships have one or both parents that are different depending on where you read it. But I think the most interesting one is the birth of Aphrodite. I don't know if anyone else feels this way, but it seems to me like the Hesiod version of her creation is usually like skimmed over or avoided. And like maybe it's because it's so gnarly, but like so much stuff is. But I'm talking about like how Aphrodite's position in the Olympians and like how her ranking among them changes so drastically depending on which version of her birth you know. So in Hesiod's version, which is usually like considered the OG reference, right? Aphrodite's born out of Uranus's castrated uh, manhood falling from the sky. And so she's meant to emerge fully grown and fully sexy, like right out of the water. Like it's kind of like it's shown in Botticelli's painting. But then there's another story that's also like pretty common that says that she's the daughter of Zeus and his very first wife, the Titan goddess Dione. So like obviously big plot hole here because she comes in at two totally different generations. But it's interesting because both are commonly understood to be the real story because for most people, it's just whichever one they heard first, right? Like I personally used to think Aphrodite was Zeus's daughter and like it was normal that her dad wanted to marry her so badly that instead he made her marry her brother to keep her like locked down. But like in the other way, she's kind of more like his aunt and I guess it makes things a little bit less weird. And it's like the same thing with Eros, right? Like, is he a primordial god or is he Aphrodite and Ares' son? But we will never know because they're both kind of right and nobody was there. So, but so moving on. So that's what happened to the genitalia and the sea mixing, but the drops of blood from the father slash son mutilation that landed on the wife slash mom, Gaia, also produced more children for the couple. Or all the bloody drops that gushed forth, Gaia, Earth, received. And as the seasons moved round, she bare the strong Erinys and the great giants, with gleaming armor holding long spears in their hands, and the nymphs, whom they call the Malae, 
all over the boundless earth. Hesiod 176. So the giants were a race of men slash monsters that were very closely related to the gods, and their name is usually used to mean earthborn, which totally makes sense because it is 100% accurate. And they were all born with full armor and weapons in hand, ready to fight. So even though we understand the name to mean them being giant, they weren't necessarily super huge monsters, but maybe some of them were, but it mostly meant like they were just super strong. And then next was the Furies. These ladies also go by the name Aranes, and they are the goddesses of vengeance and retribution who punished men for crimes against the natural order, especially going after people who commit murders, offend the gods, or lied under oath. You can usually find them working away in the underworld, making sure that everybody that was bad down there was having a terrible time. And unlike their sister, Aphrodite, they are described as ugly women with big wings who were covered in poisonous snakes. And most obviously from this whole ordeal is the blood creating the ash tree nymphs that are called the Oread nymphs or the Malayi. They were the wives of the silver race of man and then the mothers of the bronze race. And living up to their name, they would nurse their children with the honey of ash trees. And finally, from the drops of blood emerged the Kuretes. And they were the gods of the wild mountainside and the inventors of the rustic arts of metalworking, sheep herding, hunting, and beekeeping. Funny enough, a lot of these earth slash blood children play a pretty decent role in the next half of this story too. So just wait for their return. So after mutilating his father, Cronus is supposed to free his siblings, which is sometimes referred to as birth them because like they also sometimes say that they were imprisoned in her womb, right? But I think it's more like they were hidden underground, so in the earth. So like I get it, but I don't necessarily like it. But now Cronus takes control of the cosmos, a role which apparently the sky was in charge of prior to this, and then kicks off what is known as the golden age. And after he takes the throne, he marries his sister, Rhea, who then becomes known as the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of the Gods. But her kids are coming into play next week, too. So you might be thinking he sounds like a really good brother, freeing his siblings, helping his mom, marrying his sister. But no, he never actually freed his siblings. He left them in there, even after dethroning his father. And remember, Gaia wanted Kronos to kill Uranus, not castrate him. And then Rhea gets screwed later on too. But so like, he did nothing right. And this is partially why everybody hates him. And you also might think things seem pretty sweet for Kronos. But like all good Greek myths, there's a prophecy and it is not good news for the number one father betrayer. Because he disobeyed Gaia and left his siblings in prison, she was mad at him. And obviously, he just cut off his dad's genitalia, so he was also pretty mad at him too. Understandably, though. So then, Uranus and Gaia prophesied that Cronus' own children would overthrow him someday, saying something along the lines of, I hope you like it when your kids go and do something like this to you. 
And yeah, I guess because he was a child who overthrew his father, he knew that it was definitely a possibility, and he took it very seriously. So by taking a very drastic step to ensure that this wouldn't happen, but I mean, there's kind of a much more obvious and way less horrible way to solve this problem, but I guess that just wasn't an option. So yeah, but that is the back half of this story which we will be finishing off next week. So I will see you there. Okay, so now this week to win the free Oh My Gods t-shirt, this is the question for the contest. What was the sickle used by Cronus made of? So now if you know the answer, you can head over to ohmygods.ca slash contest, submit your correct answer, and then add in your contact information and your t-shirt size. And if you get picked, you win a free t-shirt. So now that the first father has been betrayed and dethroned, next week we'll get into the real meat of this story. Pun partially intended. After Cronus takes over as ruler of the cosmos, he and his sister wife start having children. But because of what his ticked off parents said, and knowing how horrible of a child he was, he does something a little worse than hiding his kids in the earth. But just like Gaia, Rhea does not love the idea of losing her children like as soon as she gives birth to them. So on the wise counsel of her parents slash in-laws, meaning the same group of people, not two separate groups of people, because they're brother and sister, right? She hatches a plan that is going to solve all of her problems. This then leads to karma showing up in the form of another son with a vendetta against his dad. But we will get to all of that next week. So if you like what you heard, please feel free to follow, subscribe, rate, and all the rest. And if you're looking for info or deets, check out ohmygods.ca for the reading slash watching list, as well as the cheat sheet and the upcoming episodes. Well, thanks again for listening. Okay, bye. <laughs>